Hey, it's Martine. Just a heads up in today's episode, we are going to be talking about mass shootings and hearing some of the sounds of chaos at 4th of July events across the country. Over the holiday weekend, a shooter terrorized a community outside of Chicago in a suburb called Highland Park. The place uh, where that most Americans associate with Home Alone or Ferris Bueller's Day Off. This is senior editor Mark Fisher. We wanted to talk to him to reflect a little on the scenes that we have all been processing from this last 4th of July weekend. And like so many cities and towns across the country, Highland Park was celebrating the holiday with a parade. I mean, this was your standard issue American 4th of July parade with high school bands and uh, all kinds of uh, cheerleaders and the regular ingredients of a 4th of July celebration. And people felt safe enough to come out and, uh, you know, they were set up families and on bridge chairs along the sidewalks as the bands went by. And it was just during one of those performances by a band, a local band, uh, when these hollow pops rang out. And uh, it's interesting to look at the video and see there was a delay. There was a, a moment when no one could quite figure out what it was. Was it gunfire? Was it firecrackers? 246 years of history says it's not necessarily a threat. It could be a celebration. And yet our most recent history tells us uh, any large gathering uh, is a moment to be cautious and to be wary that there's going to be a mass shooting. And indeed, in this case, there was. There was a rooftop shooter uh, who fired upon dozens of people, uh, killed six people, injured more than 30, almost 40 people. And so in Highland Park, there's bloodshed and tragedy. And in hundreds, if not thousands of other American communities, there were the same jitters, the same mental calculations are going on, and yet nothing was wrong. They were firecrackers. And we saw on Monday in one city after another, that same moment of sussing out, that same moment of Am I in danger? uh, That led to many panics of people jumping up and running in Orlando, Florida. In New York City, uh, in Washington. And this led to a whole series of odd moments in which the police are assuring people, don't worry, it's just a firecracker. They're tweeting, this is not an alert, you're you're not in any danger. Uh, And people are wandering back to their bridge chairs or uh, settling their family down. But, But there's that initial panic that takes place that probably wouldn't have a few years ago. big piece of, of what we saw on Monday is uh, this loss of trust uh, over the last several years where we don't 
believe that the police are necessarily going to protect us in that kind of a situation. Where we do believe that there are uh, mass shooters and political extremists of one flavor or another uh, who are out to cause mischief or harm. And so the combination uh, creates this sort of perfect storm of anxiety, edginess uh, that leads to these scenes that we saw. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, July 5th. The rise of mass shootings in America has brought up so many complicated and sad questions. How are we supposed to live in a society where we have to be so fearful? What will it take to prevent these kinds of shootings from happening? And how do we punish the people who perpetrate unthinkable acts of violence. Today, we are diving into that last question in an interview with our colleague, David Nakamura. He covers the Department of Justice, and he has been reporting on this very difficult choice that is facing Attorney General Merrick Garland in the aftermath of the shooting in Buffalo almost two months ago. In that case, 10 people were killed. They were all Black. The suspect is a self-avowed white supremacist, Federal prosecutors have charged him with 26 hate crime counts, plus another gun-related charge that carries the potential penalty of death. And here, the government has a choice. Should they seek the death penalty against the alleged shooter? It's a choice that could force Merrick Garland and the Justice Department to decide between its core values. The government has a couple of positions here is to to punish uh, the shooter, but also to send this broader message that the government will not stand for these kind of crimes. And how you do that remains a question. You know, what happens at these trials? What happens with the punishments? What happens with the broader message? It's not completely clear what will necessarily you know drive that bigger point, which is to to stop hate. And a lot of these tough questions are playing out publicly as the Justice Department tries to do right by the community in Buffalo. The attorney general uh, visited Buffalo about a month after the mass shooting. Uh, He brought some of his top deputies, uh, including from the Civil Rights Division, uh, Vanita Gupta, who oversees the entire civil uh, litigating section, and uh, Kristen Clark, who does oversee civil rights. Thank you, Associate Attorney General Gupta, uh, Mr. Attorney General, and colleagues. Today, I join my colleagues in grieving the innocent victims of this senseless crime and expressing my condolences to their families and the Buffalo community that has suffered through this traumatic event. They were there to sort of offer reassurance to the folks on the ground, the survivors and the families of victims, as well as local officials, that the Justice Department is doing a full uh, investigation. These acts of hate are a stain on our democracy and have no place in our society. A bit of the surprise, though, uh, they did announce while they were there the federal charges against Peyton Gendron, the alleged shooter. And uh, there were significant charges, 26 uh, hate crime counts, but also a gun-related charge that does carry the death penalty. And so Merrick Garland uh, announced that. He met with the families and survivors privately, and then he held a uh, a news conference where he detailed uh, all of the above. This is a death penalty eligible crime. The Justice Department has a series of procedures that follows. First, of course, there has to be an indictment. After the indictment, then the regulatory procedures will be followed, and the families and the survivors will be consulted. 
And I know that you talked to some of the attorneys who were there in those meetings. Um, can you introduce uh, who you talked to? Sure. There are several attorneys uh, working with the families. Uh, They range from Ben Crump, who has a national reputation as a civil rights lawyer. There are some local attorneys on the ground, including John Elmore. Hello. Can you hear me? And his daughter, uh, Kristen Elmore Garcia. Hello. They are also local attorneys, and they were in the meeting with Garland as well. Um, When Merrick Garland did um, come to Buffalo, when he emphasized that this is one of the Department of Justice's top priorities, he posed it in the sense that It has to be one of their top priorities because we can't allow our country to tolerate this kind of behavior, this kind of radicalization, this kind of mass casualty. The question is for the families, you know, what's going to come next? I think they're still certainly, of course, in in shock and mourning. Um, they're still, you know, burying family members. Um, so they haven't decided, you know, some of the bigger questions, including whether they would support uh, the government going for a death penalty conviction in this case. And that's an, an open question. So let's go back to when Merrick Garland was first sworn in as attorney general. What were his goals for the Justice Department? And specifically, like, where did the death penalty come into that? You know, Garland made a big point of saying, hey, look, we, we, I came up in the Justice Department as a young lawyer, Garland said, and he wants to restore the department after the Trump administration back to one that sort of abides by norms, uh, procedures uh, that's tried to remove political considerations. There's always going to be some amount of political pressure on the Justice Department by the president, by uh, the administration that's in power. But the idea that this is an independent institution that will, you know, make decisions based on the rule of law, he's taken a number of steps to try to do that, to restore sort of institutional process to his decision-making. Among those is the question of the death penalty. Uh, The Trump administration restored the federal use of executions uh, after 17 years in which they were not used. Uh, Prior to the Trump administration, the last time someone was put to death on a federal case was 2003. The Trump administration in the final six months of Donald Trump's tenure executed 13 prisoners mm-hmm. from death row. And Garland was said, you know, last summer he, he issued a memo that said, we're going to stop that. We're going to pause that and we're going to take a review of some of the changes around uh, lethal injection, other policies the Trump administration put in place uh, before we decide what to do next. So right now, uh, that memo is still in place. And basically, the federal government is barred from actually executing anybody on death row. Uh, what the memo does not do, however, is stop the government from potentially seeking death in one of these cases, including the case in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. And why up until this point has the Department of Justice under Garland been more reticent to continue pursuing the death penalty? Like, can you talk about some of the arguments against and the pressure they've received from people who are advocating against the death penalty? Sure. There's been a great pressure uh, from liberal groups, from civil rights groups to abolish the death penalty. And among those who've spoken out as civil rights advocates is the number three ranking person in the Justice Department, the Associate Attorney General Vanita Gupta. On December 10th, 2020, you tweeted, abolish the death penalty. Is that correct? That is correct. Between her service in the Obama administration and her return to public service in the Justice Department under uh, Garland led a big civil rights group, the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, and spoke out quite a bit against the death penalty. July 4th, 2020, you tweeted, the death penalty is always wrong, but right now a priority apparently 
for U.S. DOJ. Is that correct? Senator, I have been a proponent against the death penalty, but I also know how to enforce the law. And I did so when I was in the Justice Department before. You know, these groups believe that the death penalty is used arbitrarily uh, and unfairly uh, against, you know, African-American and other uh, minorities. And there's been studies that show that that's true. Not only that black defendants may more often you know, receive the death penalty, but also that crimes committed against white people or white victims, prosecutors more often then seek the death penalty in those cases than they do against crimes with black victims. And so this sort of situation has led to the Biden administration saying, look, we have pledged to uh, pursue racial equity in the criminal justice system. You know, and that that pledge came after the 2020 protests we saw after George Floyd's death in Minneapolis. Uh, and so Biden and, and others are saying we are committed to to trying to ensure fairness in our sentencing and our policies in in prison terms and federal cases. And so this falls squarely into that. Uh, and Merrick Garland, you know, again, last summer with this memo said we're going to take a close look at that. And I would point out, I mean, more specifically, President Biden said during his presidential campaign that he opposed the death penalty. I mean, that felt pretty clear. He did. And, you know, it's an interesting shift. People have talked about Biden's shift from a a senator in the 90s, you know, working on the crime bill at the time uh, with longer mandatory sentences to sort of, uh, you know, responding now to the changing kind of views on the left about these kind of uh, penalties. And yes, you're right. He did speak out against the death penalty. What he has not done, though, as president is is create a new policy. And, you know, people I've talked to in this story say one of the issues for Garland here in making this decision about the case in Buffalo is that there is no clear direction from the White House. They've offered sort of a preference, you know, a policy preference. But Biden has not, you know, used political capital, really push hard, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's legislatively in Congress to outlaw the death penalty or to sort of put new procedures in for his administration and how these are these punishments are meted out. So Merrick Garland, too, though, uh, has shifted. You know, he came to prominence to a large degree for his work in the 1990s in the Timothy McVeigh Oklahoma City bombing in which the federal government and he was in the Justice Department helping prosecute, um, you know, won a death penalty conviction. And McVeigh was eventually put to death in 2001. And in his confirmation hearing last year, uh, Garland was pressed by Senator Tom Cotton, a Republican, uh, about that case and said, what would you do now? Do you regret the fact that Timothy McVeigh received the death penalty and has been executed? Look, uh, uh, I supported the, as I said in my original uh, um, uh, Senate hearing um, when I became a judge originally, uh, I supported uh, the death penalty at that time for Mr. McVeigh in, in, in that individual case. I don't have uh, any regret. And Garland said, look, I stand by the decision and the, and the outcome of the case in Oklahoma City, but I do have concerns now about the death penalty over the last 20 years. But I have developed uh, concerns about the death penalty in the 20-some years since then. Um, and, I, and, I, and, and the sources of my concern are uh, issues of exonerations of people who have been convicted of uh, sort of arbitrariness and randomness of its application because of how seldom it's applied and because of its disparate impact on uh, black Americans and uh, members of other communities of color. Those are the things that give me pause. And uh, those are things that have given me pause over the last, you know, as I thought about it over the last 20 years. He did not really come down one way or the other in answering Tom Cotton about what he would do. He said, look, I would look to the White House to see what their policy is. Judge, if you were confirmed as attorney general and there was another case like Timothy McVeigh's where a white supremacist bombed a federal courthouse, killing 168 Americans, including 19 children, and your U.S. attorney sought your approval for the death penalty, would you give him that approval? 
So I, I think it depends on what the development of the policy is. If the president asks or if we develop a policy of a moratorium, uh, then it would apply across the board. Uh, there's no point in having a policy if you make individual discretionary decisions. But, he, you know, he didn't say exactly what would happen. It, this shooting is almost, you know, that kind of thing that Tom Cotton was asking about. So it is putting him under a lot of pressure. So, David, I know that the alleged shooter in this case was a self-described white supremacist. Can you talk a little bit more about what prosecutors and, and law enforcement know about what his plan was and and what his beliefs are? Sure. You know, that we had a, a defendant here in Peyton Gendron who, you know, basically had, we now know, meticulously planned and plotted to attack uh, black people in what became a grocery store uh, was a setting that he chose. And he wrote a long screed outlining his views about white supremacy and sort of echoing this these sort of theories that have gained some traction on the far right of the great replacement theory that that whites were being replaced by minorities and immigrants um, because of, of, you know, hopes for political power from the left. And so he had this long uh, document sort of you know, laying out his views, but also kind of his plans for some sort of attack. Then he carried out the shooting, but before that, he you know apparently had sent out you know an invitation to people online in some chat rooms to sort of view some of his his documents, and then mm. live streamed the beginning of this attack in the grocery store in an African American neighborhood where he knew he would find you know black people shopping and and they could become his victims. And so you know he carried out mm-hmm. this attack that killed uh, you know ten people, ten black victims, uh, you know wounded several others. Uh, the federal interest in the case, again, comes down to sort of the nature of why he carried out the shooting, not whether he did or didn't. That'll be up to the state to prove. But the, the, hmm. the federal government would, will rely on that to sort of make that case that he did the shooting, but also then go further and say he did that because of his hatred toward minorities, but his hatred toward black people. And that's where the federal crime of, of a hate crime comes in. Uh, and mm-hmm. they do have, again, they did add, though, the other charge about uh, firearms, which that he used a firearm, um, you know, a semi-automatic rifle in carrying out uh, a crime. And that's a potential federal crime as well. So that is the one that does carry the potential for death. And so by adding that, people t- told me, you know, that the government would a- charges whatever they can, you know, whatever they think they can prove. And so adding that does not mean they will go for the death penalty per se, but it, it certainly gives that option. And, you know, and the, and the Biden administration is is under pressure not to just sort of de- deal with white supremacy and hate crimes, but also gun violence. And so, you know, again, the idea that you want to hold people to account for crimes committed with a gun, even if they, they did, and as this case appears, obtain those firearms legally. Can you give a picture of what the shooting meant for people in this community or, or what that response was like to how um, traumatic this all was? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I was not in Buffalo and I didn't join the uh, the attorney general. But, you know, from my understanding from talking to folks who were in the meeting with him was that it was fairly emotional. It seemed to me that he understood that how important this was and, and how devastating of impact that this crime had on our community. Um, and, and he was visibly shaken and visibly upset. People in the room, the victims, the families were emotional, but also the attorney general seemed to be uh, emotional as well. You know, Merrick Garland is a pretty soft-spoken man, a uh, former federal judge, as we know. But, you know, that he sort of tried to explain to those in the room that that he understood, that he understood their pain and that he understood, um, you know, the seriousness of this, not just, of course, the crime, but of of kind of how the federal government needs to respond to it. Uh, the families that we represent, um, they indicated their preference was for the the government to seek the death penalty. They expressed all the grief 
uh, and the difficulties that this had caused, that this was uh, a, a homicide committed by a white supremacist that just wanted to rake uh, havoc on the African-American community. And, and, and it was their position uh, uh, that the death penalty should be reserved for the most heinous criminals who commit the most heinous crimes and that this one is the ones that, that met that, that definition. Legal experts I talked to, you know, say, well, where does the federal interest come in in a case that, you know, the state authorities are already investigating? Uh, and this was a similar question in the Ahmaud Arbery case uh, in Georgia. Um, and the idea that, again, you know, in, in these cases, the state may well win a life in prison conviction on murder charges. And isn't that enough? Why does the federal government even have to be there? But I think there's a, a time right now where in the country there's this concern that we need to send this broader message and that the federal government's role is to do that and to help do that and to and to try on on hate. And the idea that hate itself, you know, and, and when carried out and acted upon is a significant crime, not just to those who are shot or people in the store or even in the community, but beyond that to groups around the country who see this uh, and are, are, you know, the goal is to make them fearful. The buck stops at the desk of U.S. Attorney Eric Garland. And and this panel of U.S. attorneys is, is going to make a recommendation to Eric Garland, and he's going to make a very tough decision. After the break, we talk about how the attorney general will try to make that tough decision. We'll be right back. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. It's interesting the distinction that you're hearing, that if the federal government were to convict this alleged shooter and say and, and give him a sentence of life in prison, that even that they're saying wouldn't quite send a message to white supremacists, essentially, that that they are taking these kinds of crimes seriously. And I don't know, could you say a little bit more about that? Like, why would it be so bad if they just ended up with life in prison? I mean, that's a pretty stark punishment. Yes, that, that is a, a significant issue with some complicating, uh, you know, questions, I think, behind it. And, you know, people I talk to who, you know, study the death penalty and its outcomes point out that the death penalty does not, you know, according to data, seem to be a, a great a deterrent for these kind of crimes, mass shootings, uh, murders, killings of police officers. Uh, be, they, they point out that if you look at states with the, that allow state executions, which New York does not, that, you know, that shootings there, their murder rates are sometimes higher and, and, and quite often higher than states that don't. They, they say that's not causal necessarily, but that's just a fact and that these are not being dissuaded by the presence of the death penalty. Um, you know, some of these folks, they may want to be martyrs or they want they may want a trial, uh, you know, with great fanfare to get their, 
you know, ideology out there. Uh, and so whether they get death penalty or not, it's not really a factor. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that's a question is like, what are you trying to accomplish with the death penalty? Is it is it is it vengeance for the families? Is it, um, you know, to dissuade, uh, you know, others from doing these kind of crimes? So that may take that off the table. Um, you look at precedent, you know, the Dylan Roof case uh, in uh, South Carolina, the Obama administration, the Justice Department then uh, under Loretta Lynch did go for the death penalty there and, and got it. Uh, and Dylan Roof is now on death row. His attorneys appealed last year uh, while Garland was in office. The Justice Department did not change its position, continued to back the sentence that included death, uh, and it was upheld on appeal. Um, there's another case in in Pittsburgh at the shooting in 2018, the mass shooting at the, the Tree of Life synagogue, which authorities say mm-hmm. was an anti-Semitic crime. Uh, the, the Justice Department, again, under Garland, is continuing to push forward on a death penalty charge, even though... Uh, people in that community are saying, have written to the Justice Department saying, enough's enough. We don't want to keep going through this. Uh, years of sort of uh, hashing this out and reliving our pain. Let's just go for a life in prison, which... Uh, the, the, the death penalty can actually take more of a toll on victims because it ends up more with so toll. much more mm-hmm. legal procedures and time and detention. And So people say, what? yeah, what are you trying to... Where, where, Who has the interest in the case? Is it the victims themselves who may want the death penalty or is mm-hmm. it, uh, you know, the broader community that may have a different interest? And I think the final consideration I would bring up is just, you know, the idea that some say the death penalty is is a long process because it's not only an extra sentencing after a conviction on the on the charges, then you go into a death penalty, uh, you know, argument in court, but then also the potential appeals that drag on quite a long time. It's expensive. It's time consuming. Some say get the life in prison um, that satisfies a significant punishment, but then use the you know money and time that may go into you know appeals and and litigation, and use that to try to find other ways to deal with white supremacy or to deal with a gun violence, right? Use it in, in other policy measures. You know, some of the civil rights groups that are against the death penalty, that's what they're saying as well. They're saying, look, life in prison, that's it is a big sentence. And we want justice here for the victims. Mm-hmm. But we also want greater justice in a system that treats people equitably. They point out that racial equity doesn't just mean, you know, a white person is put to death because they killed black people and therefore that's getting toward equality. But rather, uh, you know, we want across the board, the Biden administration to invest in housing and education and uh, social services that will help the communities and help other, you know, potential, you know, people who, you know, are going down the wrong path. So it sounds like you're saying that for some people, they see a real trade-off here, that the Biden administration wouldn't necessarily just be able to opt for the death penalty in this case against this alleged shooter, but then continue down the path of trying to not use the death penalty for for everyone else um, for for cases that are not like this one, but that they're fearful that if they get the death penalty for this, even though the crime was so incredibly egregious, that it could also lead to more of that essentially like injustice in criminal prosecution that we have seen um, over the course of history and that you kind of can't get one without the other, if that makes sense. Right. I mean, I, I talked to Al Sharpton for this. He gave the eulogy for two of the Buffalo victims. He said he did not talk to the families about the death penalty, but he said, you know, his, his he and his National Action Network, civil rights organization, are against the death penalty. And he makes the point, you can't have transactional morality. You can't say, well, okay, in this case, we're going to go for the death penalty, but we really don't like it overall. Mm-hmm. And that's our policy, right? You have a policy is a policy and the goal is to get equity. And he called it a moral and civil rights issue, um, you know, opposing it on a couple grounds. But the idea that, yes, I mean, going for the death penalty would be a setback in the goal of racial justice because the civil rights groups are saying they've been fighting for a long time to 
out, you know, abolish the death penalty. Um, but others say, again, that the nature of the crime, the fact that the precedent suggests it's similar to other cases where they did uh, go for the death penalty successfully, and the number of victims um, in this case, you know, 10 people killed, others wounded, um, that calls for the, you know, the most severe of, of, of punishments. And if this is on the table, Tom Cotton has, you know, told, told me for the story that, you know, this law exists. The death penalty is allowed by the by Congress uh, in federal cases. And so um, it should be applied if if the facts fit. And if you look at these past precedents, I've talked to a number of um, uh, former U.S. attorneys and officials who said they think Garland will be under great pressure to go for it. So um, a lot of complicating factors are involved. And how about the potential political ramifications for Biden, even in 2024? I mean, is there is that part of the consideration of how this will look to Democrats? Absolutely. Um, the, you know, Biden, again, like I said, he, you know, people point out that he, you know, was struggling in the primaries during his campaign. Um, you know, he got great support from the African-American community. And that, you know, I think a lot of folks I've talked to in the civil rights community say, look, you know, after the protests in 2020 and as the Biden start to became, became the nominee, you know, he got great support from our community and he pledged to sort of went in office, respond with policy and, and to, to, to pursue racial justice and racial equity throughout his administration. Uh, you know, uh, Biden has named uh, uh, Susan Rice, you know, as his uh, domestic policy advisor and tasked her with taking that lens of civil justice, uh, you know, throughout the administration. And so people are saying, look, if he, you know, he needs to respond in that, you know, consistent way and, and show that he's making progress and his administration is making progress. And that includes in the Justice Department. Um, on the other side, crime is up, you know, murders, gun violence mm -hmm. is up. And Biden is getting criticism from the Republicans uh, that he's not doing enough, that he's that he's soft on crime, you know, even though he has continued to say that he does not support, for example, defunding the police mm -hmm. and things like that. But but just, you know, that, that that's going to be an issue. And so to not go for the death penalty here, I would suspect Republicans would uh, make a case about that, right? And to say, you know, these black victims deserve full justice and they're not getting it um, is what the argument they might make, even if it could be somewhat disingenuous from the people making it. So I think that is the question, you know, they're facing. People I talked to pointed out that, again, that, you know, Biden in not pushing for a specific policy since taking office has left this, you know, difficult decision for his Justice Department uh, and Garland. And, and it's sort of wrapped up in a lot of factors, especially as Garland's trying to sort of take the politics out of it. Mm -hmm. Right. And mm -hmm. so uh, ironically, maybe the White House has pushed the politics onto the uh, or punted onto the Justice Department in some ways here. And but it could reverberate back around to the president. David, thank you so much for all of this. Thanks, Martine. I appreciate it. David Nakamura covers the Justice Department for The Post. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Rena Flores and Bishop Sand. It was edited by Maggie Penman and mixed by Renny Svernovsky. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. 
I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.